It's such a joy to get to worship with y'all here in Cyprus. Uh, my name is Derek, one of the teaching pastors, teaching pastors here at Bayou City Fellowship. Uh, I get to bounce back and forth between Spring Branch, our other location, and, and Cyprus here. And so I get to see God doing work at both places. And let me tell you, God is at work here, no question, but he is at work as well in Spring Branch. And we're seeing people step into the kingdom, trusting Jesus at both campuses. And so it's a really exciting time to be a part of this body that God has definitely anointed for this season uh, to bring the word of God, to invite people into the kingdom. Uh, very, very excited. Uh, if you're a guest, let me just extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy your time here, but more than anything, we want you to encounter Jesus. Uh, we, we want that. We don't come to church to sing an amazing song, which, which we do that. We don't come to church just to hear some guy or some gal teach out of the word of God. We, we come to church because we want to be transformed. And so I want you, even if that's not your desire right now, that maybe even you would have a check and say, man, maybe I should want that. And so maybe even you ask to God, God, I want to be transformed today because when I'm in your presence, when I'm in your truth, nothing can happen except to be changed. I want to be more like you today. Maybe that's our prayer. That's my prayer. That's what I've been praying over you. Um, I listened to the sermon last week that Curtis uh, gave up here, Vision Sunday. It was a great Sunday in the house, was it not? Uh, I missed out, but it was great. I hear good things. He challenged you to do two things. He said, one, bring a Bible if you have one, and uh, so there's no shame if you don't have your Bible. It's all right. Uh, and then number two, he said, hey, really make it a point to be here in a seat for the next few months. Uh, and he gave a money-back guarantee, and I'm not sure what that is in the ministry, uh, but he said uh, that you will be blessed and your faith will be increased if you're in this church while we go through this series. And so uh, let me just start out by saying we have Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, if you need one, uh, we would love to give you one. Does anybody need one right now? I would love to give this to somebody. Maybe you forgot your Bible. Somebody just help me out here. Somebody raise their hand. Yeah, back in the back. Come on up here and get this Bible. We're going to have a little interactive church today. It's going to be fun. Hopefully this doesn't squeak. Here you go. Here's the Bible. Love it. Good work. Good work. Thank you so much for not leaving me hanging there. It would be bad if nobody said yes. If somebody else needs one, just come up here and grab you. I promise I won't punch you. Um, today we're going we're gonna to start a new series. Uh, James. The title is James, a uh, very creative title that we have for this book study. Uh, we are a very simple church. We're about Jesus, and we don't need a bunch of fluff. We are going to study the book of James. We're going to go verse by verse and ask God to speak truth over us. And so if you have a Bible, um, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to see um, some truth here today. James chapter 1, we're going to read verse 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so today, as we, as we enter into this study, I want to give us uh, uh, some framework for the rest of our study of James, so some foundational things to know who wrote this book, who is he writing to, and we see this in the first few verses. In verse number one, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know James wrote this book, but if you know the New Testament, you know there's several James. There's James the less, there's James the greater, there's James that was the disciples, there's James that was the brother of Jesus, there's James and the giant peach. And so... Just checking, you were awake here, right? He's, he's not in the Bible, by the way. 
But, but this James, because of the context, we know that, that James, the disciple of Jesus, he was actually uh, killed prior to the writing of this book. So we know because of that, it wasn't him. And because of some other circumstances, and we know uh, positionally where James was at in the time, we know with a pretty high probability that the author of this was actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half-brother because he was born of Mary just as Jesus was. But we know Jesus didn't have a biological father. His father in heaven is his father that Mary was conceived. Jesus was conceived by the spirit of God in Mary. And so James, his, his biological father was Joseph and his mother was Mary. And so he's the half-brother of Jesus. And this is the man that is writing this book that we're going to study and uh, what's interesting about James is he was the brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. Can you imagine how cool that was? But, but actually, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, why he was walking with Jesus. It says in, in John that, that not even his brothers believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But, but, but then uh, Jesus died Still don't know if James believes, but then Jesus resurrected and he came and he revealed himself to James. And it says that James then, he believed that Jesus was Jesus, that he believed that he was God. So let me tell you, if you don't believe Jesus is God, listen, it takes one glimpse of who Jesus really is and you'll be a follower. And that's what I'm praying for all of us in this room, that when we get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, that we can't help, we are drawn, we want to follow him. And this is what happened in James's life. He saw Jesus after the resurrection and he knew that he had to follow him. And I love how at the beginnings it says, James, a servant of God. Now, now James could have addressed this letter with some more fanfare. He could have said, hey, I'm James. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. That means I have some of the chromosomes that Jesus has in him. That's me, so you should listen to me. But James, he, he takes a different approach. He said, I'm a servant of God in Jesus Christ. And this word servant in the Greek means bondservant or slave. He didn't say, I'm the brother of Jesus. So listen, he says, listen, I'm James. I'm a slave. Of Jesus. He lifts up from the very beginning Jesus as God. Not James as a brother, but Jesus as God. He's a slave. He's a servant of that Jesus. That's who wrote this book. And then we say, well, who was the audience of this book besides us? And we're going to get to that. But who was the specific audience that this letter was penned to? And we see that in verse 1. It says, it says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, we've got to think of history here. The time when he was writing this letter was after Jesus died and raised and ascended back in. This is probably around 47 AD, somewhere in that. So the very early part of the church. And so he says, I'm writing this to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which is all the believers in Jesus that have now been spread out all across the land. Primarily, Jews, because the Jews are what heard the good news of Jesus first. They're the ones that believed first. And so because of persecution in their own homes, because they were being kicked out of their own communities, because they were following Jesus, they had dispersed and scattered. And it wasn't just the Jews, though. We know in Acts, when James was in uh, authority position in the church, that, that Gentiles also came to know who Jesus was. And as Peter preached to the Gentiles, it says that, that they came to know Jesus as the way. And it says that they were filled up with the Holy Spirit. And so they knew that it was of God. Now, now that's an amazing concept that it's not you going to church that shows that you are a believer in Jesus. It's that are you filled up with the Holy Spirit that shows that you're a believer in Jesus. Uh, amazing concept there. Um, and, so, and so we see he's writing this letter to literally refugees. 
They were kicked out of their homeland. They were running for their lives. They were thinking about what am I going to eat? What am I going to sleep tonight? They were on the run. They were refugees in distant lands in the world. And so this is where I think the application of James um, can speak to us where we're at today. Because you're not naive. If you're a believer in Christ, you know that not everybody in your community is a believer of Jesus. That all the parents of the kids that your kids play sports with, they're not all believers. All the people at your workplace, unless you're on staff at church, they're not all believers, right? And so we are very similar to this dispersion. We as believers, we are now scattered out amongst the world in the midst of great evil, in the midst of great darkness. We, the light and the salt, are dispersed amongst the world. And so what James is going to tell us and open up for us in this letter is extremely practical and relevant to us today. So I don't want to write it off that it was for somebody. No, it's for all believers at all times and is important to us today. Uh, one thing I, uh, I love about James is that he's really earthy and gritty. He, he's a really simple guy. He, uh, some say that, that James is the least theological book in the New Testament. The least theological book in the New Testament, yet... James gives us great examples and application of what it looks like for theology, thoughts about God, beliefs about God, that's what theology is, to be played out in our everyday lives. And so as a simple guy, I love this. Because my heart is to know God and for my, my faith to be matured. And this is exactly what James is pointing to. The, the book of James primarily is James going through and saying, hey, this is what it looks like to be spiritually mature, to be filled up with the Spirit and to walk by faith. These are some practical ways that that overflows into real life. And so I like that. It's pretty straightforward. He calls a spade a spade. And I think you'll enjoy it as well. And I guarantee you'll be challenged by some of the things that he writes in this book later on. And today, likely some of us will be challenged as well. Um, today we're going to look primarily at verse 2, 3, and 4. So let's just read chapter, or verse 2 here. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And so I just want to set up on this word joy for a moment because joy is, is really hard for us to get a, uh, an accurate definition. Everybody's kind of got their own view of joy. Uh, the world will tell you one thing that joy is, but, but today when we talk about joy, we're speaking specifically of Christian joy, which, which is not the same as the joy in the world. We're talking about Christian supernatural joy here today, okay? So let me give you kind of a, a definition, and then I'll give you another definition. So the joy that we're talking about today is a feeling of gladness or contentment deep down in your soul. Gladness or contentment. Let me tell you what. John Piper, um, on his Desiring God, God blog, uh, what he wrote in a sermon that he preached on joy, he said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit causes us to see the beauty of Christ and in the word and in the world. So let me unpack that because John sometimes speaks way over my head sometimes. So, so joy is this good feeling down deep. It's not just this passing, fleeting thing. It's, it's this soul feel of goodness that is only produced by the Holy Spirit. There's no way that you can white-knuckle and will your way into the joy that we're talking about today. It's really important that we get that. So this is produced only by the Holy Spirit, and it's produced when we begin to see 
the beauty of Christ in the word of God and in the world that God has created. And so when he's saying about beauty, what I believe he's saying, what I see in scripture is that he's talking about the hope. The beauty of God is the hope of God that we see in the scriptures and in the world. And so as we're thinking about Christian joy today, the underlying theme is about hope. It's underpinned with hope. It's impossible to have this supernatural joy apart from hope. You can't do it. It's got to be produced by the Holy Spirit. Christian joy, um, therefore, is not based on my circumstance. Christian joy is based on God and his presence, not on the lack of trouble or the lack of issues or the lack of problems. Therefore, in any situation, as James says, he says, count it all joy. Now, now let me tell you what joy is not, and I'm, uh, hopefully a lot of you will just take a deep breath because I see you're kind of in, like, what's, what's joy? I don't know if I have joy. Let me tell you what joy is not. Joy is not a, a happy face. Joy is not a facade that I build. Remember, where a facade is what everybody sees that looks good, but behind is a bunch of nastiness trying to project what I am or what I feel. It's not in the Sunday morning church foyer where somebody says, how are you doing? And you give them the old buckaroo, hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? God bless you. That's not joy. That's borderline lying for a lot of you. (laughs) Joy is not a happy face. And joy is not peppiness. Woo! Peppiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. And a lot of men said, yes, amen, like, like, I'm not animated. I'm, I'm a little animated. I know, but I'm a guy. But, but not everybody is like that. And so joy is not this extroverted response of, man, everything's great. Like, that's not joy. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is not peppiness. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, only by the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at this today, what we've got to recognize is when he's telling these people to counter all joy, he, he's not talking to people that are just kind of ho-hum about their job. and about the, No, he's talking to people that are running for their lives. People that are being persecuted with words but also physically beaten. People that are being pulled out of their homes like Saul did, Saul of Tarsus, pulled out of their homes, beat and killed. That's who he's speaking to today. And he says, in the midst of that, have joy. Counter all joy. Are you kidding me? You see, it's, it's not a natural joy. It's a supernatural joy. It's not a smiley face. Because trials are full of pain. They involve loss. And they incite all types of emotions. And we see this specifically in the life of Jesus. The one, if we have a question about God, we look to Jesus because he is the exact imprint of God. So when I have a question about joy, I say, okay, I want to know about joy. What if I just look to Jesus and see what he said or see what he did? And if we look at Jesus, one of the things that he told his disciples at one time, he gathered them up and says, hey, I'm going to give you my joy. Now, how many know to give something, you must have it first? So, So Jesus, he completely had joy because Jesus was connected to the Holy Spirit like none of us ever will until we get into heaven. He was so connected to the spirit that everything he did was in line with God. The things that he spoke was in line with God. And so every moment he was filled with joy. It was a fruit of him because he was so connected to the Holy Spirit. So everything Jesus did was done in joy. But that presents a problem if we start looking about some of the hard things that Jesus went went through. And just think about one specifically. Think about 
the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus uh, gathered up his three best friends, closest friends, and said, hey, go to me, because he knew what was going to happen the next day when he was going to be arrested and sent to the cross to die for you and for me. He gathered his best friends and said, hey, will you guys, will you guys go with me to this garden? I'm going to pray, and I really want your support because it's really not going great for me right now. And Jesus actually says in the text in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says that Jesus was greatly troubled and full of sorrow. Not things that you think about joy, right? Greatly troubled, greatly sorrow. And he, he gets them together with him, and then he leaves them, and he goes and prays to his father, and he says he gets face down. Face planted on the ground before the Father. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He said, if I don't have to go to the cross, let it be something else. But, but he said something interesting. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus, a man who was always filled with the Spirit, who was operating with great joy, he had great sorrow. And it says in the text that while he's praying that he was so overwhelmed with the pressure of the situation that he, ble- that he a sweat, sweated blood. That's the intensity that Jesus was walking through. And I guarantee you there was no smiles or fake laughter when Jesus was going through this. Yet we see joy was part of this. Hebrews Chapter 5, verse 7 says that Jesus gave loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. This is Jesus, a man that was fully of joy. He gave loud cries and tears to the one that could save him, to his father. And then we see in Hebrews 12, 2, which I think gives us some context on how we look at joy. He writes this about Jesus. He says, looking to Jesus, which is always a good place to start. Get our eyes set on the king. That's always a good place to start when we're going through trouble. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy, who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the midst of this really troublesome time, these trials that are coming against Jesus, the pressure of what's going on, it says that he considered it joy because he knew what was going to come, even though the cross was between him and the Father. That, that he could have joy in a moment like this, not a smiley face, but a real deep joy, a contentment, because he had hope in the Father. He had hope that he would be returned back to heaven and that his returning to heaven after the cross and after the resurrection, he could then allow us to come back into relationship with the Father. And so he says he looked at the cross even with joy because he knew what was going to come. He had hope in the Father. And so for us today, we have hope, not because our circumstances tell us so. We have hope because our Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. See, Christian joy is not all smiles, if you haven't figured that out yet. But often, or actually more often than not, Christian joy is full of tears, agony, and sorrow. Yet the Holy Spirit points us to the hope that we have in Jesus. That he is with us. That Jesus is at work around us even if we don't recognize it. That we will ultimately reign with Jesus in heaven. So the Holy Spirit gets our eyes off of the circumstance 
and onto the king who is over all circumstance. And in that, there is hope that's stirred, there is faith that's stirred, and I can get my eyes off of everything that's breaking around me, all the things that are coming against me, and I can say, yet, Jesus. Yet all of this, but Jesus. But that can only happen through the Holy Spirit. You can't white-knuckle it. You can't get in your prayer closet long enough and try to pound it out. No, it's only by the Holy Spirit working in your life. And so he says, count it all joy. But then he goes on to say, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials of various kinds. And so let me just give you another kind of a, I know this is kind of a downer message. It's cool. Um, So let me give you a little pick-me-up. Trials are inevitable. Like, it's not if I have a trial, but, it, but it's when I have a trial. That's why Jesus, when he got his disciples, he said, guys, listen up. He said, there is going to be trouble in this world. You will have trouble in this world. Jesus this calls a spade a spade. He says, listen, what you're dealing with now, that's what I told you was going to happen all the way back in John. You're going to have trouble if you're living in this world, especially if you're following me. And so we've got to ask the question. What are these trials that James is speaking of? And, and what was Jesus talking about when he said troubles? Let me just make this even go better and better and deeper here. This is the trials that he's talking about. Sufferings, hardship, testing, persecution, calamity. Glad you came to church today. Anything that could cause us to question God and his character. Now that's really important. So, so hear that. The, the trials that are in our lives that James is speaking about and what Jesus are speaking about, you can summarize them all by saying anything that could cause us to question God and his character. Now I think that we can look around the room and you can kind of find some solace in the fact that we are all have had troubles at one time. No matter how good somebody's life is looking from afar, you can count on it. They have had a trial or two in their day. Because every single person in this room is in one of three categories. You're either in the midst of trouble and trial right now. You're either licking your wounds from coming out of a trouble or trial. Or get ready because you're about to go into a trial or trouble. It just keeps getting better, right? So trial is part of the Christian life. It's part of the world because we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And and the trial that James specifically speaking of is he's speaking to a bunch of men and women who are being persecuted by the Jew and by the Gentile. Their own people are trying to kill them, but also the government of not their people are trying to kill them. They don't really have a lot of friends. They're scattered around. They are being hunted down by the likes of Paul or Saul and others. And so we see this is the challenge, that in this world, we will have trouble. Now, do we just lay down and say, okay, that's fine. What do we do in the midst of trouble? Because some of you are carrying some big burdens today, coming in here with some major trouble, feeling a lot of pressure, whether that's financially, work, relationally, all kinds of things. You're feeling some pressure today, so what do we do? I want you to turn um, to Habakkuk. I did not just spit a loogie. I said Habakkuk. Um, if you go to Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, and go to your left, you'll see some minor prophets. You'll see Haggai, Zephaniah, and then Habakkuk. Habakkuk. When I was um, praying about the sermon uh, Monday, 
I really felt like the Lord had led me to Habakkuk, and I don't know much. As of Monday, I didn't know much about Habakkuk, and so I thought it was interesting the Lord had led me there, and then I read through and prayed and studied Monday and Tuesday just this three-chapter uh, book. It's a really short book. I would highly suggest you go and dig a little deeper. We're just going to summarize it today. But, but what I found is, is Habakkuk gives us this great blueprint of how to deal with trouble. Uh, if you want some more homework, you could look up the book Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great Old Testament book. And what you'll see in Nehemiah is a similar outline, almost identical outline to what we're going to see here in Habakkuk. It's throughout the scriptures, but I think Habakkuk nails it on the head of how do we deal with things in our life that are not great. When, when things are coming at us that make us question the sovereignty of God, make us question the goodness of God, make us question do we really serve a God that loves when X, Y, and Z are happening, when those things happen, what do we do as a believer? And I think we're going to see this in Habakkuk. So let me read uh, verses 2 through 4 in chapter 1. So this is Habakkuk. He's praying or confessing to God. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Wow. Uh, growing up and going to vacation Bible school, and Bible, like, I didn't know you could talk to God this way. Did you know that? Like this, this is like raw emotion. Like this is really, really real. And some of you are like, oh man, I don't, man watch out for lightning Habakkuk. Like, ooh, I don't know about that. But, but what we see throughout the scriptures is, is David, he approached God in a very similar way in the Psalms. He would cry out to God, God, why is this happening? I feel like you're not here. And so what we see Habakkuk do is for us to get to joy in the midst of tribulation, it requires us to be honest with God first and foremost. We've got to be honest with God if we want to have joy in our tribulation. And so we see, see Habakkuk, man, his nation who he loves, they are under great distress. There are people coming at them, persecuting them, killing them. Things aren't going well. In the midst of that, he says, God, I don't really believe that you're at work here. I don't really believe that you are doing anything about all this injustice. Have you ever thought that? I'm not going to ask you because you'll probably lie to me. But a lot of us have felt this way, and many of us are feeling this way right now, is, God, are you even present? Are you really working in this situation? Because all I see is bad. And so we see the first step to finding joy in trial is being honest with God. And the word that I want us to use there is confession. Confession, because what confession is, it's not going to God telling him how bad you feel about what you've done. Like we've sometimes in the church made it that. Confession is telling God the truth. So it means, God, I believe this about you. I believe this about my current situation. That's confession, and that's what we see Habakkuk do here. He confesses. He tells God what he does, and that may be hard for you, but, but let me tell you, if you want your faith to grow, I think it begins with honesty with God. It doesn't intimidate. Listen, we have a God that's not just big enough for your praise. He's big enough for your honesty. 
He's big enough for your questions. He's big enough for your doubts like we sang about earlier. I find you in my doubt. God is big enough for your complaint. As a church, we've got to be a church that confesses, that goes to God with truth, what we believe to be true at least. And then, so he, he asks God these questions. He tells God these things that he's believing. But then the God responds to him in verse 5 and 6. He says, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. And so what God responds to Habakkuk Habakkuk says, hey, God, this is what I believe about you. But what happens to Habakkuk is then God then speaks real truth into Habakkuk. And this is the second thing. So we confess to God what we believe. But in our confession, we say, God, will you show me the truth about who you are and about what's really happening? And we see this in Habakkuk. And God, he speaks into Habakkuk and says, hey, Habakkuk, I understand what you're going through. Let me just pull back the curtain a little bit and let me show you what I'm really doing. Let me just give you a little piece. Listen, I'm actually raising up this enemy of yours, and they're going to come in, and they're going to pronounce judgment on your people. When you see that, that's me doing that. And so the word that I think here described is repent. Repent. Because the word repent literally means to change your mind. Now, actions follow, but you don't change your actions, then your mind. No, to to repent means I, I see that I've got an improper view of God, and so I ask God to speak truth. And when he does, I align myself with God, and I turn the other way towards God, and I align myself with his thinking and his truth. And this is what we see Habakkuk do. He says, this is what I believe about you, God, that you're not present. But then he says, God, tell me the truth. And God says, no, listen, I'm actually present. I'm doing way more than you can ever imagine. But here's just a little sneak peek. Let me show you what I'm doing. Confession. Repentance. But here's the thing. When we ask God for truth, we've got to expect that God will actually hear us, and not only hear us, that he'll actually speak back to us. You see, that's what separates our God from an idol, is he speaks. Uh, I think there's a lot of Christians, and maybe some in this room, that you're like, I don't think God speaks. Well, guess what? Then you're serving an idol because idols don't speak. One of my favorite authors, uh, Richard uh, Foster, he says this, Jesus is not idol, nor has he developed laryngitis. But for many of us, we've kind of written off the fact that God can still speak. And that's a shame because what you end up doing is you begin to serve an idol and not the God who speaks. Because our God, he speaks when we ask him. We've got to believe that. We've got to trust that. We see Habakkuk says this. We see uh, throughout the scriptures, we serve a God who speaks. So the question is not, is the question isn't if God speaks. The question is, do we, are, are we really interested in hearing God speak? It's not if God speaks, but if we will actually be interested in him speaking. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, if Jesus is truth with a capital T, everything he says is truth. And so do we really believe Jesus that he speaks today? He also says that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he's going to speak to you the things that I didn't have time to speak to you. So he clearly says that God is going to continue to speak. So do you believe it? We've got to ask him for truth 
expecting that he will actually speak back just as he did with Habakkuk, just as he did throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus does still speak. And so I want to challenge you if you're going through a trial, open up and be brutally honest with God. Get so honest with God that you are a little scared that he's going to strike you dead. Because what we see in the scriptures is that when men and women do this, when they get honest with God and lay it out there and say, God, here's what I believe. Will you speak to me that God does what he promises to do and he speaks truth over those people? I want to challenge you to when you ask God to speak, that then listen, don't run off, don't rush off, don't get distracted. Listen as if you really, he really will speak to you. Now, he may speak to you in a lot of different ways. It may be, and primarily probably, through the word of God, okay? So if you're not opening this book, it may be a challenge to hear from God. Just, just being real, okay? So if this is never open, you're already cutting out a big piece of how God speaks, okay? He may speak to you through signs. He may speak to you through visions and dreams. We, we still have a God that's actively doing those things all around the world, He may speak to you in your prayer. I don't know how he'll speak to you, but if we'll ask him with honesty, I guarantee you from his scripture and from my own experience that God will speak. He'll make himself known. And so we confess, we repent by asking him to speak truth. But then the third thing is we remind ourselves. We remind ourselves. Flip over to chapter 3 of Habakkuk. We're not going to read all of this, but in chapter 2, God responds and gives Habakkuk a little bit more um, understanding about what he's about to do. And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk gives this prayer um, to God. In verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. And so he's already at the beginning here of this prayer, he's looking back to what God had done in the past. He's remembering what God had done. Verse 5, it says, Before him went pestilence and the plague followed at his heels. And so in verse 5, he's speaking about Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. He's thinking back about how has God moved in the past. And then in verse 11, he says, The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped. And so he's also recalling back when Joshua asked God to extend the day. So he's confessed, he's repented, and now we see Habakkuk, he's now remembering back to what God had done. And in doing so, he's stirring his own faith and his hope in God of the present. Now, Kate and I, my wife, we we do this often. As I've shared, she's kind of had an on and off um, uh, struggle with, with doubt some of the things in the world and, and God, she she's kind of goes in these seasons of that. And so in the midst of these seasons where she's questioning who God is, the thing that we often do is we often, we always confess to God, hey, this is what I really believe, speak to me. But the other thing we do is we go back and we read the things that we have written down over the years about how God has moved. And so if you want a really applicable, like practical way to leave this message is that when God speaks to you or God moves or God answers a prayer, write that down. Write that down. Because when we're in the middle of that, we'll go back to a journal from four or five years ago, and we'll be stirred up for faith and hope that, that then God spoke amazingly, he moved amazingly, he provided amazingly. And when I do that, I recognize that the God that was back then doing that is the same God that's with me today. And this is what Habakkuk was. He was stirring up his faith saying, hey, God, you moved in this way, in this way, in this way. I'm going to trust you in this situation because you're the same God you were then as you are now. And so I would 
encourage you, if you're in the midst of a struggle right now, if you're feeling the pressure of the world, go back to remember what has God done in the past? How has he revealed himself? How has he spoken to you? Let that stir up your faith. And then the last thing that we see is that confession, repentance, and remembrance, that they lead us to rejoice. Verse 17 in chapter 3. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The f- no food. And so what he's saying there is he's describing the, the situation that Habakkuk is in right now. And so those first verses, he's saying, listen, there's no vegetables in the land. And if you're a vegetarian, that's a problem. But I like meat, so that's not a problem. But then he, he kind of steps on my turf and he says, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall. So we've got a problem for this nation. They have no vegetables and they have no meat. Therefore, there are bad things going to happen to this nation. There's going to be starvation. There's going to be hunger. There's going to be all kinds of issues that this causes. And he says, even though all these bad things are around me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. So we see the process here, that he goes and he confesses to God. He asks God to give him truth, and then he remembers about what God has done. And so even in the midst of great trial, he can say, no, I'm going to trust in God. And when I have hope in God, the God of my salvation, there can be joy. Joy that the world doesn't understand, but the supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired joy can be present. If he moved in Habakkuk's life, listen, the same God that spoke to Habakkuk is the same God that is living inside of you, if you're a believer. The same God that spoke to Nehemiah and lifted him out and took him to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, that same God is the same God that walks, talks, and guides you. If he can do it for Habakkuk, he can give him joy in the midst. Let me guarantee you that he can do it for you as well. It may not be easy. It's not going to be on your power. It's going to purely be by the work of the Holy Spirit and you trusting him. So let's get back to James as we wrap up here. James chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the testing of your faith. Now these tests, once again, they're the trials or the things that come against you that make you undermine what you really know about God to be true. It makes us question those. And so these trials come along, and what happens is that our faith is actually demonstrated when we are tested. If if we just have a, a great life and nothing is wrong, then we're not going to realize if we have faith or not. Faith is demonstrated when we're tested. We find out really quickly who we believe in when the tests come. What we turn to when the tests comes and when the trials come will reveal who we really believe in and who we have faith in. And the analogy that I was thinking about is like a sports team. You know, early in the season, you have these uh, pools uh, that they kind of jump and they kind of say, hey, we predict these people are going to be good and these are not going to be good. But all that's based on a bunch of teams that have just practiced against their self, right? They've, they've practiced, they've scrimmaged, they have potential, but they don't really know what's happening. But, but so it's all potential. They really don't know what kind of team they are, but, but when they're tested, like when they actually start playing an opponent that is actually pretty good, they then they find out who they are. When it's fourth quarter and you're losing by 14, a team finds really quick is who they have faith in. Do they believe in the person beside them? Do they believe in their coach or do they not? 
Testing reveals where our faith is. And so in early football season, a coach definitely wants to win, but a coach really likes it when they have a close game because in that game, the team begins to mature. In that game, the the team actually begins to have confidence. They begin to show that they have faith in each other and in the coach. And so later in the season, when they actually get into uh, their divisional games, the, things get a little harder, unless, of course, you're playing in the Big Ten. Um, they get a little bit more challenging. And because they've already been tested, they can then step up to the challenge and play all the way through. See, the, the testing then produces better results in the later team. And that's what I think Jesus or the Father does for us is that tests are primarily for us. They, they reveal our strengths and our weaknesses. They give us confidence to take the next faith step. Or they can actually show us where we've become complacent and naive in our faith. See, the testing that God gives us is used to reveal our faith to ourselves so that we can trust him when something greater comes into the future. So your testing is really for you to recognize your faith so that when God calls you to something even harder and stronger and greater, you're going to look back and say, man, but God was there. I'm going to have faith. So that's where we see that that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. Everybody say steadfastness. Steadfastness, right? Maybe your Bible says patience, but I think this word steadfastness, it it better sums it up. This word means patience. It means persevering endurance. It's an act of endurance. It means continuing. In the Strong's dictionary, the Bible dictionary, it gives this definition. It's this steadfastness in the New Testament is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate, deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith, even in the greatest trial and suffering. So steadfastness is an unwavering faith and purpose and direction in the midst of great trial and great tribulation. And so we see that, that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And that makes a lot of sense because just think about like a a, a track runner, a sprinter. They test their body in sprinting every day so that when they get out on the racetrack, the testing has produced them to be a better and faster Runner, does that make sense? So, so think about school. Some of you are still in school or have kids. The testing of math, at least by the common core standard, is going to produce kids that can do better in math, right? And so the testing of our faith, what's it produce? It produces a stronger, supernatural, unwavering faith. This happens, this happens. And that's why in sports, a coach loves to have a close game as long as they win it, of course. But they love that close game because in the midst of that game, the team matures and the team grows. And so the next time they're faced with a big challenge, they know what to expect. And they're not going to run for the hills. They're not going to question the coach. They're going to have faith, unwavering faith. And so he says that the testing of your faith, it will produce this steadfastness. And then he goes on and says, let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Now remember, James's goal in this letter is to bring about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, a fancy word for that is, is sanctification. 
his desire is sanctification. And what sanctification is, it is the process of becoming in practice who we really are in Christ already. Let me explain that for a second. So sanctification is I'm in Christ. And so in Christ, Derek, as a believer, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm without lust, I'm not a liar, I am a son of God in Christ. And so what sanctification does by the working of the Holy Spirit is it takes who I am right now today in Christ and it brings it down to where the rubber meets the road. The practical application of my faith and who I already am seen by Jesus, it lives out in my life. And so as the Spirit works in me, there's going to be less and less lust in my life if I'm obeying the Spirit and walking with Him. There's going to be less and less lying in my life if I'm hooked up with the Spirit and obeying the Spirit. There's going to be less and less greed in my life, but it's a process. It takes time. Every year, we actually become more and more like Christ. And, and a good question for you today is, if you ask him, am I really filled up with the Spirit? Let me just zing you a little bit here. Is say, five years ago, am I any more looking like Christ than I was five years ago? Because if the answer is no, or if you're really shady about, man, maybe this one thing that I did different, but that's five years of data, maybe you need to go back and say, do I really have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Because if I'm in a relationship with the Holy Spirit, his work is to sanctify me, to form me, conform me, transform me into the image of God. And so every season of my life, I should be coming more and more like the person God already says that Derek is. Okay? So that's what sanctification, this is the purpose of him. So he says, listen, don't rush that process. It, it takes time. It's actually going to take your entire life. So put a seatbelt on and enjoy it. Count it joy. When you face trials of various kinds because it will produce steadfastness and steadfastness when it has its full effect. Not its five-year mark effect. Not its ten-year mark effect. When it has its full effect. Its full effect is when you cross from this world into the next world. That's full effect. And so he says when you cross over, when you've been maturing in your faith, maturing in your faith, when you die and you come to see your creator, in that moment you will be complete. You will be perfect. You will be lacking nothing because... You are with the one who is perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. And so he says, this is the foreshadowing. Be patient because it's a process. It's going to take time. And someday you're going to to cross over from this life to the next. And in that moment, you know what it's like to be perfect, to be without want. But this is only possible. The sanctification process is only possible if we are joining with the Holy Spirit. Joy in your life is only possible because it's a gift, a fruit of the Spirit. And so he says, don't try to rush the trials that you're in and what you're learning and how God is forming and maturing you. No, get your eyes off of all this and get your eyes on Jesus. And count it joy because you're actually being made into the image of Jesus Christ yourself. And on the backside of this life of suffering, this life of tribulation, this life of trouble, on the backside of that is you being perfect with the king who is perfect. That's why I want to challenge you and encourage you that if you're going through some tough times in life, you're not alone. And the Bible does not just give a, hey, just come on, just just make it on your own. No, The Bible calls us to a supernatural way to approach that. You can't do that on your own. It's got to be you abiding in Jesus, following the Holy Spirit, allowing him to work this out in your life. 
And so if that's you today, if you're in a trial or you just came out of a trial and you're saying, man, I don't want to go through it like that again, like I was really bad, I just want to encourage you and exhort you to follow the way of Habakkuk. That he approached God with great honesty and said, God, I don't see you at work right now. I don't know if I believe how good you are, how much love you have. Like, get honest. Confess to God. Ask him to speak to you truth. Allow him receive that spirit of truth that he wants to speak to you. Remind yourself about what God has done in the scriptures, but also in your own life. And as we do that, the spirit of God will take all that and add the supernatural to it. And even in the midst of trials. We can have joy. Not a happy face, but this deep down contentment, knowing that the obstacles that are in our life, that there is someone who is over all that and has something on the end for us. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you um, and I humbly come to you knowing that I don't have all this worked out in my own life. (laughs) I wish I did, but then it wouldn't be a process And so, uh, Lord, I know there are people represented across the line, some people that are just barely dealing with just financial stuff, but there are some people that have had extreme loss, and they're wondering who you are, wondering if you're really present, wondering if you really are all the things that you promise in the scriptures. And, Lord, so I thank you for bringing them here today. And, Lord, I ask that you would speak, even during this last worship song, that you would speak truth into their questions, into their doubts, And Lord, when you speak, that we would receive that and we would turn our mind and align with you. God, we ask that you would uh, bind up the brokenhearted uh, even during our prayer time. That you would uh, stir up our faith and our hope that you are a good God and that you're present with us. In your name. Amen.